0: Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a nonprofit consultant, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. Yes, I love taking these nonprofit leadership topics on the road or into your Zoom room. If you need someone at your next conference or workshop, check out my new speaking page at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Now, I know you're going to enjoy this fantastic conversation I had with Beth Reeves, who brought her talents and great experience from the for-profit community into nonprofit leadership. And she now serves as the president of the Washington School for Girls. Well, not only did we get to discuss the wonderfully unique educational experience that she's leading now at the Washington School But lots of practical advice she has for nonprofit leaders, especially if you're pondering a move from the for-profit sector, or maybe if you're just looking at senior leadership in general. Well, Beth has wonderful advice as to how you can hit the ground running in that next leadership role. And we talked about how she created an entry plan and organized it on a 30-, 60-, and 90-day basis. Uh, she is great with spreadsheets, and she will give you other tactical ideas as to how you can assure success in your next leadership role. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 179. Just go to the new podcast page at patmcdowell.com, and you'll find all of the resources Beth and I discuss, as well as more information on the great work she's doing at the Washington School for Girls. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Beth Reeves. Beth, thank you for joining me on The Path.
1: Thank you so much for having me this morning, Pat, and I'm excited to be here.
0: I'm equally excited. You have a fantastic leadership career, both in the corporate sector and certainly now in nonprofit leadership. And you can touch on topics that I know our listeners are interested in, chief among them our listeners that perhaps like you were in corporate America, thinking yeah. about joining a mission-based nonprofit. So let me start with that question, Beth. Why did you leave a successful corporate career and get into nonprofit leadership?
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's that's a great place to start because I feel like, you know, at the time when I made the decision to move on, things were going well on the corporate side, but it is hard. What I realize is, realized then was that it's hard sometimes to see the impact of your work when you're in a large corporate setting. I worked for a fortune 50 company. I worked in the, you know, in the corporate office. And, you know, while the work is very valuable and meaningful to you personally, I felt like I really wanted to see more of an impact of what I was doing. Um, I wanted to be in an organization that was really driven more by the mission and just really wanted to be closer to um, the end result of what I was doing. And it felt like, you know, being in the nonprofit side of work in a smaller organization would give me more control and certainly would give me more of an opportunity to see directly where my work led to, um, to results, if you will, for the organization.
0: It makes perfect sense. And again, having had conversation with you, I love this journey because you were very thoughtful. In fact, Beth, was this something you were pondering for years or was it a rather sudden kind of change? How would you describe the timeline?
1: I would say that you know it really was over a couple of years. The other added layer I will um, say is that you know I had children, and um, you know things change. Your perspective changes when you're trying to balance the many different pieces of your life. And for me, it just felt like you know at that time I really just again wanted to be in a different kind of setting, in a place where I felt like if I'm going to be you know committing a lot of time and my energy to work, I wanted it to feel meaningful to me personally.
0: Well, it, clearly, you are making a meaningful impact at the Washington School for Girls. And let me pose that question. How, how did that emerge as an opportunity? Was, for example, education on your mind? Or, or you, did you consider other nonprofit sectors to get involved?
1: No, education is it was was it for me. Um, and I actually, this was the Washington School for Girls, where I am right now, was my second nonprofit job. So I was first um, in a school um, as the head of school in a uh, in a private school. In in that was my first foray in. That was really where I felt like I could take the skills that I had and just really wanted to explore it. Really patent to be honest that was my first thing I thought you know I love education I'm a lifelong learner it's just something that has always drawn me in and so I thought I would test it out and see how it went and I once I joined into I was I've always been an administrator so I didn't start as a teacher in education I was on the administrative side um once I once I sort of took that step in, I have not looked back and that's what led me to where I am right now at the Washington School for Girls.
0: That's fantastic. And we'll talk about the many of the, the skills and experience that certainly transferred successfully for you. Um, but for our listeners who don't know about the fantastic Washington School for Girls, tell us, what is it? What's unique about where you are now?
1: Yeah, thank you. It's it, this is a great um, school in Washington D.C. So we are a uh, independent school that serves our students tuition free, um, and we serve girls in grades three through eight in a community in Washington D.C. that is, I would say, among the most economically vulnerable in the city. We're intended to serve girls from the community because we are an independent school. We do not. We're not a public school with public funding. We're not charter with charter funding. Um, we fundraise and provide our budget completely through philanthropy. So my role, I'm the president of the school and I'm largely externally facing to the school and really work on the fundraising and friend raising, and, you know, developing all the important relationships and help providing the overall sort of oversight to ensure that the school can continue forever.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, and as a former fundraiser, in fact, in education, I'm excited to unpack that because I know that w- wherever it is in your job description, I bet fundraising is pretty high up there on the list yes. of things you do and you've done it well. Um, yeah. Let me go back to the transition, as you mentioned, uh, to your previous score, again, from corporate to nonprofit. Um, what helped you most then or, or and or were there surprises you faced as you made the jump?
1: Yep. I would say that, you know, when, as I mentioned, when I first sort of took the step from corporate into nonprofit, I was pleasantly surprised at how many of my own skills that I had gained through, you know, working in the corporate side would be transferable to the organization. So the few things that I can think of right off the bat are fundamentally organizations are made up of people. And so that's true on the nonprofit side as well. Absolutely. And, you know, understanding what it means to be a manager of people and the infrastructure that is set up around, you know, an organization to help people develop, you know, in their own individual roles. And then also you as the leader helping to guide the organization when the work is fundamentally done by people. I mean, that's just an important, I felt like that was one of the biggest things that I thought, of course, it makes sense now that I'm saying it out loud. It's like, well, of course, you know, we're all humans, but, you know, a lot of of times um what what is really beneficial in a corporate setting is that they're organized at least where I worked, again it was a very large company. There's a lot of infrastructure set up around how you manage people, how you provide information, how you support them, how you um, how you you know set expectations for for the work that they're going to do. All of that infrastructure in the nonprofit, and sometimes that isn't quite as evident. You know, nonprofits tend to be well, the ones that I've worked for because I know right, there's right, right. large nonprofits, but where I've worked, which is small nonprofit the infrastructure may not be evident. And so being able to come in and say, you know what, I know how to do this. I can help. I can help put this in place. So that's one important angle. The other thing is, I feel like perhaps there is a misperception when you work for a nonprofit that you aren't, you don't have to balance budgets and you're not trying to make money. I mean, nonprofit in its name says not for profit, but it doesn't mean that you're not paying attention to the revenues and expenses that flow put. through your organization and you are responsible for managing that. I think that, you know, the ability to understand a spreadsheet and a budget and, you know, the financial side of an organization is something that i very much took with me from the corporate side into a nonprofit setting and i feel like that has been incredibly valuable because um because it is such an important part of what i think about all the time
0: that's excellent and yeah we talk about in our coaching the the importance of financial acumen, because many in the nonprofit sector, at least those that grow up in the nonprofit sector, maybe come through the program side or even fundraising, but perhaps did not have the experience you did in managing budgets. And that is such an essential skill and I'm glad you lift it up. And again, for the listener, like you then pondering a jump, did, did you talk to people, interview people? Were there some tactical things you did that helped you during that transition? Did you volunteer at the school or do anything that maybe helped you feel even more comfortable?
1: Yep. I would say both. I uh, Getting to know people who are in the organization is really important because you want to, I mean, if you're making the shift for something that really, you know, like I was, I really wanted to connect more with my work. You want right. to make sure that's going to happen where you are. Yes. You know getting involved as a volunteer or in, in any way you can is an important step towards that I did also talk to a few people who worked in nonprofits just so I could um I'm a I'm somebody that craves information on <laughs> right. my own decision making so I felt like it was important you know through networking to just meet people who were on the other side you know if you will who worked right. for who could kind of help me see um, what that would look like? What does a day to day look like? What does a career look like? How do you navigate through? Um, you know, again, I was used to being in a large organization with a lot of structure. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, something that was less structured or um, would still work for me as well. So um, talking to people definitely helps understand that.
0: Yeah, I, I figured you had a smart plan along those things. Of course, you're going to share more. Of the uh, actual transition, did anything else surprise you, Beth? I mean, you knew that the the large scale infrastructure from which you came would be different in a smaller nonprofit setting, but anything else surprise you once you got there?
1: No, I would say that you know my experience again in the smaller nonprofits is when I reflect back on the corporate setting is that you know there's a lot of resources in the corporate world. (laughs) Right. You maybe get a little bit spoiled by that. I was probably you know office supplies and, and office situations are right, are, are right easy to come by and you don't realize how the creature comforts sort of, thing. I feel like I'm pretty low maintenance person, but you know, you get used to having things available to you. I worked in a high rise building in a downtown setting. And so there was a lot of, you know, there was just a lot there that was readily right. available. When, when you go to, a, you know, an organization where Resources perhaps aren't as plentiful, or that you have to fundraise for everything. You pay much more attention to. <laughs> <laughs> you really need those, you know, extra expensive notebooks. Well, of course you don't, and, you know, and you know you just your mind pl- looks at things differently when it comes to if you're the one managing the budget and also having to provide the revenues to cover the budget. So. Um, So, yeah, I would say be aware of that.
0: Yeah, well, a great point. And again, you you went in with your eyes wide open, of course. And so that's, uh, I think, though, a good reminder that sometimes we, and I bet you and I both have seen folks that come from the corporate sector who maybe don't fully understand that challenge of resources in one place are not going to be as evident in the new one. But again, something else I thought you did that was brilliant was a a thought out, I'm using the term entry plan when you first arrived. And, and talk about what that entry plan was and why it was so important for you to kind of hit the ground running.
1: Yep, I um, so I spent, you know, several months, mu- I knew that I was, you know, Coming into this position, I had maybe, I don't know, six to eight months of a leeway. I'd accepted the position, but you know, schools work on a cycle. So it's like you will start on this date and it's several months ahead. So I spent some time really thinking about what I wanted to learn about the organization once I was there. I mean, you can, you know, you can meet people in advance, you can check the websites, you can, you can do your due diligence, but I really wanted to think about how I wanted to come in as a leader and particular one of the things that I just my own personal style is I'm a big listener. Um, I feel like I learn a lot from hearing from others and that's kind of how I process information as well so I called it my listening tour when I was you know my my initial entry plan was my listening tour nice. and I thought about all the different um constituents and just people in the organization that I wanted to make sure I had time with initially and so I just sort of set up a spreadsheet because again I, I love a good spreadsheet um, of you know employees and and um Students and families, and board members, and key volunteers, and community members. And, you know, I would just add to that over time, but I prioritized it because you, you know, you come into a new organization and, and It's overwhelming. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to take in. So I kind of prioritized it over the first few months of when I was going to be there and set up a bunch of different discussion guides for my own self to guide the conversations, to think of the key questions that I wanted to ask all of these different, you know, people that I would be meeting with. um, Just so that I could, you know, I'm thinking, you know, if I want to learn where the school has been in the past five to 10 years, how am I gonna draw that out of people? If I wanna learn what the hopes and dreams are for the future, where people see things, or what is the blind spot, or what's not going well? What are the questions I'm going to ask? And so all that was part of my entry plan.
0: I love that. In fact, I wanna unpack that even further. So again, these questions, well, examples of those questions, maybe that's what you just said, Beth. you'd ask people like, all right, tell me the best thing about your experience here, or what is yep. the biggest challenge, or maybe give us some other examples of what those conversations were like.
1: Yeah, one of the questions I definitely asked everybody is what should I know, like what's really important to hang on to? What should never change about the culture, about the, you know, the school, just the community, the climate, the whatever, what... Um, what should never change? And I think that was helpful for me because you come in with your own ideas and you your own perspective. But if you're joining an organization and you're new to it, like you haven't been involved, you know, if you're coming in to lead and you haven't worked your way up from the program side, like you are the new person, you need to know kind of what the what what are the sacred kinds of pieces of the organizational culture that you need to tread carefully around because you know, that can be a misstep if you come in with this, you know, you want to do some broad sweeping changes of something that has always been done that way. Not, not everything that's always been done that way needs to hang on to, but there are sometimes things that are just really important to acknowledge or to hold up as, you know, I've heard from you all that this is important um, for us to really not tinker with at the moment, but rather, you know, priorities are over here. So that would be another example.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I, and Again, the concept of the listening tour in general, I'm sure, um, created an even better bond between you and all of your constituent groups. In fact, how did it manifest itself? Then, Beth, did you then in your communications to the school community? I'm guessing then you reflected back that, hey, I heard you, and or how maybe did it impact literally the communications from yep. your perspective?
1: That's exactly right, Pat. And that's exactly how it worked for me was that I was then able, as I started to, you know, once you're, once you've done the listening and you're ready to start sort of putting things into action, I could go back and point to things that people had said because, you know, you, you maybe talk to a hundred people, but themes emerge. It's not like you have a hundred different points of view. I mean, certainly there's some divergent, but, you know, themes an, emerged to me that, you know, okay, I can see here, here's the really great stuff. Here's where people feel really good about things. I can see over here, here's are the things that people said, okay, I really wish we were paying more attention over here. So as I started to, um, you know, make some of those changes and do some of the work or put in policies and procedures or, you know, take some of those uh, action steps forward, I could point backwards to where I had heard that as a community from our community of something that we should really be thinking about.
0: Uh, Clearly, you're a great relationship manager. And by the way, I love the spreadsheet uh, focus in terms (laughs) of an organizational tool. Do you continue to use tools like the spreadsheet and or your now, I guess, database? How do you capture when you're you're having all these meetings, all these conversations, I guess, tactically as a leader, how do you kind of organize all this great feedback
1: you're getting? I love a good spreadsheet, Pat. I really, really do. I probably have way too many spreadsheets, but that's just how, (laughs) you know, again, I think that's how my mind works. I'm just leaning into what's comfortable for me. Until I've organized something like in rows and columns, it it maybe doesn't make sense to me. Sometimes I just, even if it's a project, I don't use particular project management tools. For me, I just need to lay it out in in columns. And and that's really helpful. Um, we do use a database now for on the fundraising side that that definitely helps with all the actions and meetings and all that kind of thing. But this was separate from that. This was more like right. was an overall organizational look, and it was probably way too many spreadsheets, <laughs> but it really helped.
0: Hey, if it worked for you, good for you. And yes. and I'm guessing again, if you and I had a conversation two years ago during that early period, you could go back to your spreadsheet and and Absolutely. perhaps see what comments I made. Is that kind of literally how you use
1: it? That's exactly how I used it. I used to, and you know, this, this was helpful for me um, in terms of, I, I talked about developing themes. So I would put the, you know, I, I had all my questions. I asked the same questions of everybody. First of all, right, right. you know, I tailored them a little bit, but I asked, it was like a market research study. Yeah, I yeah. the same questions of everybody. So when I asked you like, what's going really well, I could then just look at that, the answers to that. And then I could build the themes from there you know I could see the top three things that people said were going well so even though it wasn't a survey I wasn't having you check off the box or you know that sort of thing it was I was listening for you know keywords or I just could hear what people said and then when I was trying to kind of aggregate all the information it made sense to me to to just go back and and look in the spreadsheet and and by question see what people said
0: yeah, it's fascinating because so you could bring again the qualitative response back but you could say literally 90% of those I spoke with right had this opinion or yes. whatever and yes I love that um, well let's shift to the the relationship that you and I both know is critical is with your board of directors and yep. I wonder maybe you could speak to again the arrival into the relationship with your board Um, perhaps, you know, there at the Washington School for Girls and how it's evolved, you know, Beth. So from arrival to now, how would you describe some of the key elements to the relationship with your board?
1: Yep. I think that one thing that when you are new into an organization or new into leadership, I feel like it's really important to understand what the board's expectations are of you. And so when I joined the Washington School for Girls, the the board was really clear that they felt like things were going really well. And so, you know, I was to continue and to grow the work. I think that there are sometimes times that you can be a new leader in an organization and the board feels like a lot of change is needed and right, you right. Know, you're looking for something really specific or things aren't going well that's really that distinction is really important to know right up front because your board is where you need to draw your support from to make whatever impact you're gonna make on the organization. So I feel like if the board is expecting that you're gonna come in and, you know, completely fix several things that are broken, you need to understand what that looks like in terms of that whole entry plan that I, you know. Yes, I just, yes. That was, that was not my situation. So I just wanna say that, you know, right up front that, you know, it's different situation. <laughs> right, right, right. So understanding what your board expectations are is really important. The The connection that you as the leader has with the board chair, I feel like is among the most important ones to cultivate and to steward and for you as a as a leader to really understand. I put a lot of, I, I've had great board chairs and I feel very fortunate for that. I've put, um, initially, I spent a lot of time with my board chair. We met a lot. I feel right. like it, you know, probably a little more than weekly initially, um, but, you know, definitely had weekly meetings um, just as a way to keep her up to date on, you know, what was going on with my entry plan. And also for me to kind of, because, you know, all of the board members were on my list for entry plan meetings, but, you know, one meeting is not going to give you insight to who that person is and how, what they view their participation in the board and like what their what their angle is, why are they involved, what are they looking to get out of it, do they sit on the finance committee, do they say I mean, you know, you can know the facts, but you won't really know the person, <laughs> and then also the dynamic of the board being all together, and when they make decisions, and when they talk about things, like what that all looks like, you, you can only gain that through experience, but your board chair should be able to tell you about that as well, so I felt like early on, I really spent a lot of time just really um building the relationship with my board chair so that she got to know me i got to know her but also she could give me the window into the boardroom that i thought would be really helpful um very
0: smart and in fact know. if i could underline that because i do think sometimes if nonprofit leaders dealing with their board as a whole miss the opportunity about that relationship with the board chair so you were intentional there and Something else I hear a lot Beth from nonprofit leaders, uh, let's assume most, if not all board members are well-intentioned, but some are unengaged, some are micromanaging, You know, yes. both ends of that extreme. So how do you deal with board members who maybe aren't kind of where they need to be in the center lane in terms of their responsibilities? Um, I'm sure present board members excluded, <laughs> we'll assume right. your current board, right? <laughs> We're not talking about them, but in right. general, Talk about what do you do with a board member who maybe is not in her or his or her lane
1: I think that's a challenge, Patton. You know, if I'm being honest, I think that is a challenge. I feel like I, you know, certainly at this point, I am five years at Washington School for Girls. I was leader before five years. So I'm a decade into being, you know, a leader of a nonprofit. Right. I have great confidence in what I'm doing. And so I do feel like I like to be transparent with my boards always. I'd like to give them information about the program side of things. But also, I will ask when I need their insight, and then if I don't, (laughs) I don't need to weigh (laughs) in on stuff. Right. (laughs) I will say, you know, the past couple of years has been really unique, particularly as a school because of COVID and the pandemic and just, you know, all of the rules of engagement for us as a school just – there was no, you know, uh, of March 2020, there was no playbook that we could go by. So I acknowledged to the board, you know, I, I, this, these are the plans we're going to put in place. Please know that things are changing and evolving. That was when I felt, you know, my most vulnerable, if you will, as a leader, in that I wasn't quite sure exactly, you know, what we, we, every three months, we learn something new about how right. we should do things. Right. And so I just kept taking that back to the board. We met much more frequently. I met with the, um, I think it was the governance committee that was sort of helping me navigate through. I just kept bringing them back information and saying, you know, here's what we're doing, here's what we're doing. And that sort of headed off the desire for people to give me additional, you know, because everybody was reading something. Everybody wanted to send, you know, 10 more experts. This one said that, which was great. But also, but I, I needed them to know here's here's how we're doing it. Here's where I'm taking my information from. Here's how we're navigating through. I think that that has just been the way that I've always done things is that I You know, so that was with a lot of frequency, but just in general, I just try to be transparent and provide the board members with enough program side information so that they feel like they're engaged. So they feel like that, you know, they know what's going on, but also respectfully, you know, I want them to stay at the 30,000 foot level that feels great to me.
0: (laughs) Well, again, great advice and just mechanically, how often does your board meet? What's the kind of frequency of interaction for you and your board now?
1: They meet four times a year, so roughly on the quarter. Um, They do have a retreat uh, once a year that would be a fifth meeting, but generally speaking, it's four times, and then all of the committees um, meet in advance of the board meeting, so they also meet around four times a year.
0: How much time do you think you spend in board relations? And and Not exact, but I'm curious. As a leader, would you say 20% of your time is spent on board-related activity, or what do you uh, think?
1: It's probably a little bit more than that right now, I would say. Um, that's a good question. Maybe 30% of my time. So, sure. I mean, I, I do spend a great deal of time with my board chair still. That's just my strategy is that, you know, yeah. we, so Keeping. even between board meetings, I'm meeting very regularly with my board chair. Um, and we have, you know, a lot of big projects going on right now. So I would say that the number's probably higher because of that.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And again, I I, I thank you for sharing because, again, listeners who aren't familiar with the role that you have to play. And of course, there are multiple hats you wear. The other one I want to ask you about, which some listeners are like excited about uh, fundraising, if they were to move into leadership, others may be less excited about raising money. Talk about the transition into the role of a fundraiser that you've, of course, had to do in all of your uh leadership experience with both schools but what was that like and how do you approach fundraising now
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, the transition into fundraising, it has been a, um, that has become an even bigger part of of my role as a leader, um, more recently, for sure. I would say that one of the um, biggest pieces that I have come to embrace and understand is that fundamentally, as the leader, you always are the one who is the storyteller, you're the external face of, you know, your organization, you are the one who people want to hear big messages from. I've always understood that. And, you know, when you're, when you get into a nonprofit leadership role, the expectation is that you'll do that. I think that the piece that I have learned how to to bridge more of is just really taking that and understanding that, you know, much of fundraising is, to, is being in that same piece at the individual level. Also right. just, you know, putting out enough information. And when I say putting it out, I've got a great development team around me um, now that works with, with our school on you know social media and just um all you know external speaking engagements and all networking and all the different events um you really i feel like i couldn't do this on my own for sure i right. think when right. you're in this kind of setting you need a great team that you work with to help both encourage you to know where to spend your time cuz you can't be everywhere <laughs> you can't you know right. possibly do all of the things all of the All of those things that I mentioned. Um, But also, so, you know, you need a great team to help lift you up and also support you in in being present where you need to be present, but also help you to get your stories out even beyond you personally delivering the story. So, you know, a lot of times it's making sure we get together a lot and talk about what are our messages around things? Where are we going to deliver the messages? It's not just me delivering the messages, you know, making sure it appears in all the different ways we want in our, you know, email that we send out in our appeal letters that we send out in our annual report that we're going to send out just you know you as the leader needs to make sure that you're spending time thinking about all of those messages and all the different ways but your team can help you think about the execution of what that looks like
0: yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because it is a team sport as you know beth and you've got some talented colleagues that help you and i guess as you ponder fundraising in terms of the time commitment for you um is it, is, is it so intentional that, hey, you're thinking like, I need to be out in front of donors two days a week, or are there certain kind of measures you use to assure that you're doing the kind of fundraising activity you want to do?
1: Yes. Well, this has been, you know, again, we have some big projects going on. So we, um, you know, with the board, part of the, what we've talked about is that I really should be out and about, and out and about can be in so many different ways, but definitely focusing on the fundraising side, 60 to 70% of my overall time. So it, it is somewhat cyclical. Probably people will experience that too, like here in Washington, DC, you know, people go away for the summer. And so right, you're, right. You know, you're not doing, but you can do a lot of the back work then. Um, so yes, it is a, it is a, a great deal of the time that I'm doing right now is spent on fundraising.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that again, because I think if there are others, uh, talented uh, folks thinking of getting into this field, and you're saying, hey, two-thirds of your time likely is going to be spent on revenue generation. Yep. And, and that's a reality. But I- I'm guessing, Beth, that there has to be uh, a good sense of, of passion for you because you know the cause you represent is so positive. It, is that fair that these conversations Absolutely. you're having with donors, I hope, are generally pretty positive?
1: Definitely, and it comes back to you know. As I mentioned, I think that you know you come into the leadership role because you do have the passion, because you like to share the stories, because you want more people to know about the great work that you're doing. That fundamentally is the core of what you're doing in these donor meetings: is just sharing the great work that you're doing, making the connection with the donor who wants to support. You know, you want to draw them into to to your sphere and help them to see the the benefit of them um, contributing to your organization because it really, they get benefit out of knowing that what they're doing supports the great stuff that you're doing. So I think the storytelling and you know just being able to translate your messages to the larger audience, I think is, is part of what the leader does on the regular basis. It's just understanding that that also needs to happen very intentionally for the donors. And that is what the fundraising side looks like.
0: Yeah. I love the way you articulate that. And again, to your credit, the relationship management you've done, the storytelling exchange, uh, it doesn't feel transactional arm twisting, does it? If you can no, it
1: doesn't. make
0: it that way. And that's yeah, why I'm glad it really you. Doesn't. people are it.
1: incredibly generous when they connect with, you know, the, whoever's in your sphere already as donors, you know, connect with the organization for a reason. And you just need to really be able to tap into that.
0: Clearly, you've got a good thing going, and I'm imagining there are some listeners like, wow, I'd like to learn more about Beth and the Washington School for Girls. What do you look for if you were hiring someone? What What are some of, uh, maybe are there questions you ask in an interview setting or, or things you look for characteristics when you are hiring other leaders?
1: Yep, I really f- do feel like you have to be excited about the organization. You have to, you know, you have to want to. Click into fundamentally the core of what we're doing here. You have to click with the mission. It should speak to you in some way. Even if, you know, I shouldn't say, even if you're, you're, you know, if you're going to be in an office doing the work, even the even there, you should connect with the mission of the organization. So when I'm interviewing, I do look for like why Why did you apply to us? What was it that drew you in from all the many job postings out there? What was it that drew you um, into us? I feel like um, you know part of what I'm going to talk about uh, in, in a moment is just I always feel like you should want. I look for people who both have skills that they can bring, but also have a real interest and, and personal commitment to growth because you you can never stop growing yes. and learning, in my opinion. That's that's I feel like I'm a lifelong learner. So I definitely look for that in people as well. If you come and you tell me you've done it all, seen it all, been there, you know, have all the answers, I am not You're sure You're not that impressed. I'm just... You're not
0: impressed, are you? <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah, so glad you mentioned that because I agree in interviews that I've been part of someone that is excited about what they do and what they could do for your organization but also has a clear kind of vision for continued professional development to me is very attractive and it sounds like you are looking for that in particular. Um, Well, it leads to, I think, what you're alluding to, Beth. I was going to ask you kind of as a final question, because this is fantastic advice for both current and aspiring nonprofit leaders. But is there anything else as you ponder kind of final advice of someone who maybe like you 10 years ago, where you were 10 years ago, is thinking about the jump or maybe just wanting to get into nonprofit leadership? What advice would you have for them?
1: Yep. I think that if you are, you know, if you are in a corporate side right now and you are thinking about. It, you know you'd really love to take your take your next step into nonprofit leadership i encourage you to think of um as i started off talking about the skills that you have that would benefit a different kind of organization i think about management related skills. I think about systems and processes and policies and procedures. I think about financial acumen, just all of those transferable skills. I think that's the bridge that you use when you're interviewing and when you're talking and helping somebody who is in the nonprofit to see you as a great candidate with a great set of Things and skills to bring forward that maybe you wouldn't, um, maybe they wouldn't ordinarily consider. You might be considered a non-traditional candidate for the role because right. you've been on the corporate side. But I think that just drawing the bridge for people and helping them to see what those skills are that you bring will would be wonderful. That would be my my biggest piece of advice. It's
0: fantastic. And again, I know that our listeners can reflect on that and wherever they are on their journey. I just love the way you put that in terms of articulation of where you're coming from and how that will translate to whatever the future is in that organization. Um, As a lifelong learner, I'm sure that many books have impacted you on your journey, Beth. Could you pick maybe just one or maybe I can give you one and another. But is there a book that you might recommend to our listeners that's been meaningful to you on your journey?
1: Yep. the um, I'm going to pick the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. And um, this book is all about having a growth mindset towards life. And it's written, we, we did it as a whole um, faculty, staff, community read a few years ago, because nice. there is a whole section on education. But there's also a section on business. There's a section on personal relationships. There's a section on, you know, just living your life. And her main position is that you should always um not you should but there is a whole perspective around having a growth mindset and really embracing the the idea that you have the capacity to grow always and i think it's important when you're in an organizational setting because you can think that about yourself like i i very much think about myself i still don't have all the answers here i'm always trying to learn from others. But it's important when you're a manager of people to also have that same perspective about them. And so when you think about delivering feedback or when you think about supporting someone in their own role and helping them to, you know, achieve the goals that you've set in front of them, if you come at it with a mindset of they have the capacity to learn and grow, I want to help them learn and grow, as opposed to that person's not a performer and never will be a performer, Right. Right. It's just a different mindset, which is the name of the mindset book. Um, For us as a school, it was really great to to click into the education chapter because it talked about having that perspective on students. And if you just think about and also encouraging our students to have this perspective about themselves, if you just think about putting the word yet behind of any statement, it, it encourages you to get to a growth mindset. So you could think, you know, as a student, I'm not good at math, but if you think I'm not good at math yet, you are embracing the growth mindset. So in an organizational setting, you could think that person is not a good writer or you could think that person is not a good writer yet. And then you just think about how you will help them to become a good writer. That's just one example, but the book is all of them.
0: Love it. I cannot be more excited that you lifted that up. Uh, It is required reading. We have a mastermind leadership development program, and Carol Dweck's mindset is in fact the first book we in oh. essence have as required reading so i I'm didn't delighted. know that full disclosure <laughs> I, I didn't
1: know that when i picked
0: up <laughs> yeah some of our listeners are chuckling like all right patton you must have talked to beth beforehand and i'm like nah. no nope. you have come <laughs> to that same conclusion that i did which is wonderful and and i think you're right too many of our non-profit colleagues i think are in the fixed mindset right beth and that's what we're needing to break them out of and have a growth mindset and that's wonderful that you lift that up in your school setting in many respects but speaking of your school setting Beth I know listeners are like all right how do I find out more about Beth and the great work she's doing where would you like to to have them go
1: Yep so our website is wsgdc.org for Washington School for Girls in DC.org so that you can find all the information and um I would love to see the increased traffic there.
0: (laughs) Well, I am quite certain that our listeners are going to check it out. And again, I'm grateful. We'll put more information about the school in our show notes, as well as information about Beth yourself. And thank you so much for joining me on the path.
1: Thank you, Pat. And this has been great.
0: Well, I'm sure you enjoyed this conversation with Beth as much as I did and came away with some practical ideas that can guide you on your journey to senior leadership in the nonprofit sector and hopefully help you prepare specifically for your next leadership role. Don't forget about the show notes. They are available on our website, PattonMcDowell.com. You can find out more about Beth and the wonderfully unique programming offered at the Washington School for Girls. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe. Just go to that podcast page at patmcdowell.com and you will see the follow button and that will link you to any of the primary podcast platforms. Don't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. And if you like this one, click on the episodes button at the top of that page and you can scroll through thumbnails of all of our episodes and, in fact, You can search by topic or guest name. Thanks again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.